Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. A place where neither rain nor heat nor global pandemic can stop Providence from holding a St. Patrick's Day parade, even if it's in September? Yeah, you heard that right. A version of the city's St. Patrick's Day parade is planned for September 18th after the last two spring events were canceled due to COVID-19. Expect green beer and the usual Smith Street pageantry, barring any additional pandemic interruptions. We ocean staters pride ourselves on our beautiful coastlines and summers on the water. But in actuality, only a fraction of Rhode Island's beaches and coastline are accessible to the public. And when the vast majority of an area is privatized or locally restricted, it inevitably means some communities are being left out. Today, my Globe colleague Brian Amaral joins me for a conversation about beach equity, beach access, and, of course, our constitutional right to collect seaweed. My conversation with Brian after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. If you're talking about coastal access or beach law in Rhode Island, I can almost guarantee you my colleague Brian Amaral isn't far away wearing SPF 50. Brian's been with Globe Rhode Island since February, and while he writes about all sorts of issues for the Globe, his main obsessions, or pardon me, his areas of expertise, include birds and beaches and all the social and political issues that go along with that. Let's leave the Johnson turkey for another day, but today, Brian, thank you for coming in today to talk about the Beach Beat. Thanks for having me, Ed. 
Just to do a quick fact check, I have a frog and toad t-shirt yep. that says Rhode Island is 3% bigger at low tide. Yep. Is that I, true? I have that same t-shirt too and an extra large, and it is absolutely false, but that does not stop me from wearing it. Anytime I leave Rhode Island, I was just wearing it this weekend up in New Hampshire. Uh, there was actually a fact check in uh, PolitiFact Rhode Island about that, and they looked at it, talked to some oceanographers, geologists, it's somewhere on the degree of like 0.1% bigger or something like that. And they actually uh, uh, interviewed the person who came up with the t-shirt who acknowledged, yeah, I just made it up. 3% sounded like a funny number. Uh, of course, we live here in the ocean state, and I don't need to tell you that the right to collect seaweed is spelled out in the state constitution. Right there alongside freedom of religion, trial by jury, and other rights that you might expect in a constitution – so tell us, what does Article 1, Section 17 of the state constitution say about shore privileges? Yeah, I, actually, the constitutional right to shore privileges is pretty well spelled out in the Rhode Island Constitution, and it dates back to the 1663 uh, Royal Charter, uh, which says, basically, it says that the loving subjects of the king could... Uh, pursue fishing. Uh, they could, you know, fish. They could also chase a whale onto the beach uh, and and process it on the beach. And over the centuries, since 1663, those rights uh, developed through the various amendments of the Constitution. And in the, in the 1980s, uh, we had the, you know, rewrite of the Constitution, and it all went to voters to spell out these rights in specific ways. And, and it was actually if not the most, one of the most, one of the largest margins that voters approved this particular uh, measure by to say that, you know, we will continue to have access to the shore to do certain activities. One of those activities uh, is collecting seaweed. Now, I have not looked at the other 49 state constitutions, but I can almost guarantee that we are the only state constitution uh, in the country. If somebody could prove me wrong, I'd love to see it that yeah, mentioned yeah. specifically seaweed. The question is where those rights start and where private property rights, where somebody can say, get off my lawn, uh, begin. And, and that's a, a little bit of a trickier question. And it's a subject of a lot of debates lately. Yeah. What does it tell you that our constitution has seaweed collection in it? What does it tell you about Rhode Island? Uh, I, yeah. I mean, you know, we're the ocean state, right? You know, people people here, uh, it, you know, it, it is uh, more than a lot of other states, particularly in New England, we do cherish uh, the, the rights to access the shore. Uh, it's not only a big part of what we do recreationally, it's a huge part of the economy. It's a huge part of it. We don't want to be a state where uh, where if you go to the beach, you're going to get kicked off. We have a lot of shoreline, right? How many miles of shoreline are there in Rhode Island, and how much of that is accessible to the public? So there's 400 miles, uh, all told, and that's between ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and also the Narragansett Bay. Uh, so 400 miles total, but the the public radio reported, uh, Alex Nunes said, only seven of those miles are, are public beaches. Now, there's also 200 some odd state designated rights of way, these little paths where you could walk on the beach uh, or wa walk on the shore. And 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 the actually the, the state regulators want to increase that and they want one right of way for every mile. Uh, of coastline in Rhode Island. So they got a long ways to go. They need like 170 some odd uh, more rights of way to designate in the, in the state of Rhode Island. You know, you could also get on the, uh, get to the shore via, you know, some parks, 
uh, you know, you can you can pay at a state beach, you can walk on through these rights of way, but there are areas, uh, particularly in places like Westerly, South Kingstown, where there's some friction between people who say this is my right to get here and private property owners who say no, this is this belongs to me. Do you have any sense of how Rhode Island compares to other states when it comes to access to the shore? Are we doing better or worse? So let's compare two states. Massachusetts, uh, our our neighbors just to the north, they actually have an even lower line than we do for where the public has, where private property can extend down to the the low tide line. Now, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts also says that between certain lines, you can you can fish, you could do certain protected activities, but it doesn't have that same, you know, the right to walk along the shore as we as we do here in Rhode Island. Now, on the other hand, you look at Oregon. Uh, they had a state Supreme Court case a couple of decades ago that basically said, listen, people have always accessed the dry sand. There is a recognized right to be on dry sand. Rhode Island does not have that same sort of dry right to be on dry sand uh, that a place like Oregon does. So it's it's a, a little better than some, a little worse than others. And, and I think that a lot of people who live uh, in, in shoreline areas worry that those rights are being eroded. Yeah, exactly where uh, in, on the Rhode Island shoreline do, does public access rights end and private property rights begin? What's that point? It's called the mean high tide line. A lot of people in Rhode Island call it the seaweed line. You could be below where the seaweed is, but that's not really where it is. You know, that might m- make intuitive sense. Okay, well, where's the high tide? You can go below that. But it's actually a measurement made over an 18.6-year cycle. You need a surveyor to go look at it. A lot of coastal rights advocates will say that's impossible. That it, It's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. With erosion, you, you can't really measure it. And, and so a lot of people have a different take on what you can do above and below the mean high tide line and and, and even how to measure the line. And it's, it's, it's really complicated. It's not something you could see with the naked eye. And it makes it very difficult when for example, you know, the guy Scott Keeley, uh, resident of Charlestown, uh, not very happy with the way things were going uh, just over the Town Beach line in South Kingstown because uh, the uh, some private property owners had hired a security guard, put up these signs, says no trespassing, you may not pass, all these kind of heavy-handed uh, measures that these private property owners took to stop people from going there. Uh, and he went and he went with a couple of plastic bags and said, I want some seaweed. I got to fertilize my garden. I'm going to go collect seaweed and ends up getting arrested. The criminal case was quickly dismissed because the police in South Kingstown said, we don't know, it's really hard to tell where this mean high tide line is. How are we going to charge this guy? Uh, he sued. He settled for $25,000. So only a small percentage of Rhode Island shoreline is publicly accessible. That begs the question, who gets left out? I mean, you know, the rich folks who belong to private beach clubs have no problem dipping a toe in the water. But what does this mean for lower income families or families that live further from Rhode Island's waters? It's really difficult. And, you know, a lot of these, you look at Providence, our state's biggest city, and per capita, they have they have way fewer uh, public rights of way. Uh, so it, it's difficult. You know, Middletown has a has a ripped a bus line pretty close to the shore that, that people say, you know, you could always use that. But it, it, it can be really difficult. You know, a lot of these a lot of these shoreline uh, rights battles are are really a battle of the haves versus the have mores uh, rather than, you know, it's not the people in Barrington who are upset about the no parking by the shore there. If you already live in Barrington, you're already doing pretty well. 
Uh, so those are sort of intramural disputes between people in the same class, basically. But, you know, there, there's also this huge issue of, you know, where do people in Providence uh, go near where they live to access the shore? There's Collier Park. That was closed off during part of the pandemic. There was a gate up uh, for, for during part of the pandemic before we sort of realized it was better to take it outside. So it's it's a constant issue, uh, and and it is one that that um, people in underserved communities face disproportionately. Is beach equity something the legislature thinks about? The the you know the general assembly just wrapped up this year's legislative session on July first. But were there any bills submitted in this area? Yeah, yeah. So there was a bill uh, that was originally submitted uh, in uh, early 2020. That bill would, would make it so that you could not be charged with a criminal offense for trespassing if you were in this 10-foot swath from the most recent tide. And and 10 feet, you know, it's not a random number. 10 feet is is in, in older versions of, of laws in various places. 10 feet was enough to bring your ox cart down there to collect seaweed. So the, the proponents of this bill will say, we need enough room for our ox cart because these are traditional rights. It would not have said, this is public land. It would have basically said, the cops can't arrest you for trespassing on this 10-foot swath from the most recent uh, tide. You could see it with the naked eye. You could see that's where that's where the wet sand is. I got 10 more feet of dry sand where I can exercise my constitutional rights. And if I'm doing that, if I'm collecting seaweed, if I'm traversing, if I'm fishing, I cannot be charged with a criminal offense. Private property owners were very much against this and, and actually uh, you know, started a, a group uh, and hired lobbyists, hired lawyers. This came up against pretty fierce opposition from shoreline homeowners. You know, the, the real, real estate agents didn't like it, obviously. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, instead, what they're going to have is a, is a study commission in the, in the House um, that still has not been, you know, has not gotten rolling yet. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Greenville, I'd tell my parents I was planning to go to the beach and they'd say, you know, you better get up early, uh, pack a lunch and, and where in God's name are you going to park? Yeah. Um, so I always thought that they were a little too worried about that, but about parking. But you wrote a story the other day that made me think that parking at the beach really is an ordeal. Are, are some places making it tougher to park at town beaches, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, again, it's one of those things that's always been an issue. And then COVID uh, gave some towns an opportunity to really rethink the way that they wanted to do access to their beaches. You know, COVID, in the very early stages of COVID, we were very focused on keeping crowds away. You know, the beaches, there was a question of whether the beaches were going to be open and in what capacity. Now I think we sort of understand, you know, take it outside, as our former governor has, uh, would say all the time. But, you know, rather than, rather than trying to keep crowds down, towns were basically saying, listen, you know, those folks out in East Providence aren't going to Florida this summer. They're not going to Europe this summer. They're staying here and they're heading down to the Barrington Town Beach and filling it up before any of our Barrington taxpayers, the people who we run into at Shaw's, you know, they're, they're upset about this because they can't get on their own beaches that they're paying for, that their tax money is going towards. So Barrington, for example, uh, was not letting uh, out-of-towners park at their town beach starting last year. It extended all the way, actually, until last week they started doing it 
just on weekdays uh, out-of-towners can now park at the town beach. But it, it really has been a, a constant issue. In, in Portsmouth, for example, Macquarie Point, you know, the, the town administrator there, Rich Rayner, told me that a couple years ago, somebody was so upset about people overcrowding the beach and littering on it that this guy spent a couple of days collecting all the trash from the beach, went to his office, and dumped it out into his office. Oh, wow. He took, took matters into his own hands and was so upset about overcrowding, trash, that, you know, uh, so they decided... If, if you're not a resident, you can't park down there anymore. And uh, apparently this really cleared up all the issues that they had down there and nobody complains about it anymore. The only people complaining about it are people who don't live in town and can't park down there. And it's not readily accessible. It did get harder for people who don't live uh, in these coastal communities, going back to what we were saying about Providence. If you live in Providence and you want to go to Macquarie Point, if you want to go to Second Beach or Third Beach, you're going to have a harder time doing that this year than you did in 2019. You know, along with New Jersey, Rhode Island's one of the most densely populated states in the nation. So how important is public access to the shoreline here in Rhode Island? And what do you see as the next battle over that access? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned New Jersey there, uh, because uh, a, a lot of what we're seeing, I think, is, and and there's a perception, at least, and if there's a reality is another question, but there's certainly a perception that a lot of people are moving into Rhode Island from these other states, buying up houses and bringing a certain mentality about the shore that does not mesh with Rhode Island's open access mentality. A lot of People worry about out-of-staters coming in, taking these little beach shacks, knocking them down, and turning them into these big, hulking mansions, basically. Um, I, I think that there's a big cultural battle here between the Rhode Island way of doing things, which I think people think is under attack from people, from rich folks basically moving in and, and coming in with a new mentality. They I, don't I, want it to be the Jersey Shore. They don't want it to be the Jersey Shore. Finally, Brian, tell us, what's your favorite Rhode Island beach, and what are you watching for on this beach beat? as the summer continues. All right, I'm gonna have to admit that I'm not a beach guy. I prefer to be in the woods. Uh, so I think that makes me perfectly objective to cover this story because I, you know, you wouldn't, you know, catch me collecting seaweed or staying at an exclusive private beachfront mansion. I think my favorite beach, the Turner Reservoir in East Providence has like a little bit of sand that looks out on the reservoir. And, you know, uh, you know, I go walking in the woods there and I sometimes stop there to go look at the birds. That is my favorite beach in Rhode Island. Yeah, just enough room for one. Brian, thank you for taking the time to join me on Rhode Island Report. Now I'll let you Get out of here and get over to the Turner Reservoir Beach. Thanks for having me, Ed. Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globe, Rhode Island. Four current and recent Brown University students, all of whom are women, have filed a federal class action lawsuit against the university. The suit alleges that Brown fails to protect women on campus from sexual assault and actively prevents the reporting of such crimes. Alexa Gagas brings us that report. Rhode Islanders have the least trust in unvaccinated people as compared to levels of confidence expressed in the nation's other 49 states in D.C. That's according to survey data from the COVID-19 Consortium for Understanding. Dan McGowan, breaks down the latest data in a recent installment of his Roadmap newsletter. You can find it on our website. And finally, Amanda Milkovitz and Alexa Gigas bring us an in-depth look at illegal ATV riding in Providence neighborhoods. 
which has led to more than 1,300 calls to police just this year. Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering this week by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? We'd love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next Thursday. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all anytime and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.